You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Griffin, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Kevin, Brock, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Brian, Lancelot, Schmarls, Madam Anita, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Jonathan, the Admiral Binbo, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Ash, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Brock, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Killmeister, The Sextant, Randy Savage, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. For the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Scottish colony of New Caledonia in the Darien region of eastern Panama. When we last left the colonists, they had a fort, St. Andrews, and a small village, New Edinburgh. They even had an alliance with the nearby Guna people. Everything was going... okay. Not great, but okay. They were suffering from a variety of tropical diseases. All of their priests had died. They had just realized that the harbor in which they anchored their ships was difficult to leave. Plus, all of their rivals and enemies in the region were circling. Now, I've got a bit of a decision to make here. The story of New Caledonia is something of an odyssey in part because it's a years-long affair. We could spend many more weeks talking about their trials and tribulations, even in what's really this first chapter of New Caledonia. But that's not really why we're talking about the colony in the first place. I think we've done a pretty decent job of hammering home the main important bullet points here. You know, Scotland was broke. Virtually all excess capital in Scotland was tied up in this venture. Were New Caledonia to fail, not only would the national finances be in shambles, but they would, but many other people across Scotland would also be ruined. 
England, in her initial march toward empire, had played things very differently. You know, Queen Elizabeth, England wasn't rich, but Queen Elizabeth really deflected all of the risk onto her gentlemen adventurers. And some of those adventurers and colonists died penniless and forgotten. But some of them, well, some of them we've named cities here in the U.S. after, and their descendants have sat on the Supreme Court or the Congress or in the Presidency. It wasn't a perfect system by any means, but it meant that England had a lot of different eggs in a lot of different baskets. But Scotland had all of her eggs in just the one. So today we're going to wrap up the tragic story of New Caledonia. This is episode 267, Empire's Collapse. Let's begin with the good for the Scottish colonists and Darien. By the autumn of 1698, they were planting crops with the help of the guna, yam and sweet corn mostly. Come spring, they should have a stable source of food available. They were building homes as well, you know, real houses, not just simple shacks. They weren't fancy by any means, but they were mostly dry and mostly warm, so that's a big bonus. They'd also, and this is huge, they'd figured out how to get their ships out of the harbor, it was tricky and required precise timing, but they did it. And while that's, you know, necessary, it was going to cause some problems they did not foresee. Over the summer of 1698, the colonists had two visitors. The first was a merchant out of Jamaica, an Englishman who traded foodstuffs to the colonists. As payment, this merchant, a uh, Mr. Sands was his name, Mr. Sands accepted promissory notes levied against goods that the people of New Caledonia had not yet produced. Goods they would either make themselves or import from Scotland. However, Mr. Sands also allowed the people of New Caledonia to set their own value for those goods. And this actually is a good chance for me to make a correction. See, that deal which was a real good deal for the people of New Caledonia, it was made between Mr. Sands and the accountant of the Scottish colony, a man named Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton is a relatively important figure in our overall story, mainly due to stuff he hasn't done yet. But I mentioned him once before, in regard to a book he wrote called A New Account of the East Indies. That book is about to become very important to the story of Madagascar, but he hasn't gone there yet. However, when I mentioned Alexander Hamilton, I said he should not be confused with the president. And of course, Alexander Hamilton was never a president of the United States. He was a general in the Continental Army, one of Washington's top lieutenants. He was also our first Treasury Secretary and therefore very important to the early economic standing of the U.S. And the rivalry between Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson was really the basis for the beginning of factional politics or party politics in America. He was a big deal, but not president. It was a foolish slip of the tongue, a slip of the brain, really. But I didn't catch it when I was editing. It was my discussion about my use of nom de plume a week or so back that convinced Amy to pour that scalding hot cup of shame in my lap. And of course I'm glad she did. I need all of you to help keep me honest and correct when I make mistakes like that. Our Alexander Hamilton was the accountant for New Caledonia, the man who had made that sweet deal with Mr. Sands, 
But after that deal was made, he departed Darien on a mission back to Scotland. It was his job to inform the Parliament of Scotland and the boards of directors of the Bank of Scotland and the company of all of their progress, as well as of their needs, and of the 76 deaths that they had suffered so far. It was his job to get replacements for those clergymen who had died and to carry letters from New Caledonia back to Scotland. But his first stop was Jamaica, which makes sense, that's how you get back to Britain. But in that stop, he picked up Mr. Sands to go back to Britain with him. So the two men who had made that very sweet deal were no longer in the picture. Mr. Sands left his merchant concern in the hands of one of his associates, whose name I'm not going to bother you with. But when that associate looked over the books, he was appalled at what Mr. Sands had done. It was an absurd deal. They way overvalued their own goods there in New Caledonia, goods that they didn't even have yet and might never have. In the opinion of this associate, the New Caledonians had taken Mr. Sands for a ride. But it was this guy's job to return to New Caledonia to continue to trade with them. And he did as he had promised, but he was not going to be made as much a fool as Mr. Sands had been. When he arrived, he had a huge chip on his shoulder, and he informed the colonists that the terms that they had agreed to with Mr. Sands were now unacceptable. The Council of New Caledonia really fumbled the ball here. They got a bit abrasive towards this associate of Mr. Sands, and so the guy just left. He did leave a letter, I believe, that read, and I'm paraphrasing here, something to the effect of, quote, to the right honorable Council of New Caledonia, smell ya later, jerkwads. Okay, he didn't leave a letter, he just left. But that was kind of the feeling here. He didn't like them and they didn't like him. Which, you know, that's bad for the people of this burgeoning colony. They needed a place to get supplies and they really didn't have any friends out there. Their crops of corn and yam were not ready yet and winter was coming. Which brings me to the second of the visitors that the colonists had had. That's the Armada de Barlavento, the Windward Fleet, the greatest naval power in the Western Hemisphere. Now, I'm going to take a small detour here to talk about the Windward Fleet. It wasn't really a single fleet. It was the entirety of the Spanish Empire's navy in the Americas. It was broken down into half a dozen or so squadrons at any given time, but those squads themselves were impressive collection of warships all the same. Now, by this point, by the end of the 17th century, they wouldn't have had too many galleons among them. The galleon was, by and large, extinct by 1700. But it was still a colloquial term used to describe warships that came from Spain or Portugal. In much the same way that the English would call any warship a ship of the line down to a frigate, they would call it a man-of-war, they would call Spanish warships galleons. A typical squadron for the Armada at this point in time would include one or two ships of the line, you know, big warships, as well as several frigates and a host of smaller craft. Barks and sloops of war, that kind of thing. 
and these squadrons were in almost constant motion, making a clockwise circuit around the Caribbean. From Campeche to Havana to Santo Domingo to San Juan, back down to Cartagena. Now, the Armada didn't really have a home base, but if anywhere could be claimed, it would be Cartagena. It was where they did their refitting, their main resupply, and got their orders direct from Spain. From Cartagena, they would sail west-southwest on their way to Portobello, on the coast of Panama. And they would usually just pass the Bay of Darien by. You know, why stop there for a few Indians and maybe a ragtag group of pirates? But when there was a large group of Scottish interlopers building forts on their territory... They're going to stop by. The Armada de Barlavento anchored just off the coast, well in view of the tower they had on that hill and Fort St. Andrew, but out of range. They made no moves to attack, but afterwards the Guna did warn the colonists that the Spanish were going to attack them sooner or later. It was a dire threat, but the council just kind of ignored it, partly because they had much bigger problems. They were running out of food quickly, and no one seemed willing to trade. They'd sent an embassy to Jamaica, but they'd been turned away on orders from the crown. So they were going to have to look elsewhere. And, you know, right here I'm compressing quite a lot. There were other merchants and other opportunities to get foodstuffs, but over and over again the council just proved so stubborn about the prices and the value of the goods they had to trade that they didn't actually yet have to trade. So the council decided to send a ship east toward Curaçao. There, they thought they would have better luck buying food. Now, it's a fine plan. The Dutch would probably be willing to help them out. But when your ship is passing by Cartagena, and a storm happens upon you, and you literally crash your ship into the walls of Castillo Grande, that's the fort that guards the harbor to Cartagena, well, that's a bad situation. Every member of the crew was arrested and imprisoned in Cartagena, and that included the two highest-ranking military officers in New Caledonia. Now, word reached New Caledonia quickly, and they took speedy action, but I want to preface this next bit by saying that I've got nothing but love for the people and culture of Scotland. I'd also like to say that I find cultural stereotypes to be a hurtful and unhelpful addition to any conversation. I also know we've got a bunch of Scots listening, so, you know, you don't want them mad with you. The Scottish, though, do have something of a reputation for being a bit brash, a bit boisterous, occasionally confrontational. Scots and other Scots! Damn Scots! They ruined Scotland! You Scots sure are a contentious people. Just made an enemy for life! No, of course, a lot of this has to do with English wartime propaganda. Turns out a lot of cultural stereotypes are based on English wartime propaganda from some time and place. But, you know, some of it is a little bit earned. In response to the capture of their men, the New Caledonians did something brash. I'm going to read here from Darien. A Journey in Search of Empire by John McKendrick. He writes, quote, When the council heard what had befallen their compatriots, they were outraged. They sent a young Highlander, Lieutenant Maggie, with flags of truce, a drummer, and a guard of honor to demand the return of the prisoners and the goods. 
unrealistically, the Scots threatened the use of arms by sea and land, should the Spaniards not agree. Maggie arrived with the drummer beating and was escorted along the cobbled streets of Cartagena to the governor's residence. The impatient young Scot was made to wait. He presented the councillor's letters and a copy of the Act of Parliament creating the company. The Spanish governor was appalled by the Scots' existence close to his city and affronted by the threats contained in the naive letter. He discarded the lot and was about to have Maggie placed in prison when the city's garrison commander interceded on his behalf. The next day, Maggie demanded to see Pinkerton and his crew, those are the men who were arrested, but was sent on his way to Caledonia. End quote. On their way back to Caledonia, our story actually turns into something of a crossover episode for shows that are to come. They encountered a ship and a fleet commanded by an old friend of ours, Admiral Sir John Binbow. Now, for some time, John Binbow had been engaged on a mission to rid the West Indies of pirates. It's a mission we're going to be talking a lot more about in the very near future. But what's notable here is that the Scots asked Binbow for aid. They needed strong friends, and there were few stronger than the fleet under John Binbow in the West Indies. But the Admiral said, no. Now, when all of this started, the Nine Years' War was still going on, but by this point, the war had ended. Don't worry, we'll talk about that later, but you can see why I didn't want to talk about the whole story of Darien here. It starts to intersect with too many other threads. But here, in the aftermath of the war, the goal was to keep the peace, and England really wasn't crazy about Scotland making some inflammatory moves against Spain. As it turns out, John Binbow had received very specific instructions regarding the Scots in Panama. He was not to actively antagonize them, but he was not to give them aid in any way. And these orders came down from the highest level. There were a ton of behind-the-scenes diplomatic negotiations going on. Now, later on, a lot of people who were involved in the Darien scheme would blame John Binbow personally but they don't seem to have been aware of what was happening at these behind-the-scenes high-level negotiations. It's likely that nobody in the West Indies outside of maybe John Benbow and maybe the governor of Cartagena knew about these at all. See, the Spanish had plans to attack New Caledonia, to destroy them utterly, and the English knew all about it, and the English weren't going to do anything about it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Spanish Army and... It was an army was being assembled in Cartagena. The fortress, Fort St. Andrew, would have made landing a frontal assault force difficult, perhaps even impossible, but if they could get in behind New Caledonia, they could destroy them, perhaps without losing a man. And that's what they intended to do. They put in several miles up the coast from the Scottish settlement, put all of their men ashore, and began a long and arduous march through the jungle. The days that followed for this Spanish army were horrific. To begin with, they only had enough canoes to carry their supplies, but they intended to travel by water. That means that the men who would have very much liked to have been in those canoes had to climb into and march through the water. They had to guide the canoes. And all of the horrors that you are imagining right now, all of the reasons that a bunch of city-slicker Europeans should not march down a river in the Panamanian jungle, all of that happened. Crocodile, bull shark, probably piranha, and certainly the dreaded kandiru. But things got a lot worse when they climbed out of the water and began to climb a mountain. See, there was this mountain right behind New Caledonia, which was good for them defensively unless somebody managed to climb over it from the south. And that's what the Spanish planned to do. But first, this army had to carry all of their food and their water and their guns and their shot and their powder and their cannon up the side of a very steep mountain. Shortly after they began their ascent, the Spanish commander, a general more than 60 years old, suffered a stroke and lost the ability to speak or leave. When they finally did reach the summit, many of the men were sick or injured, and then it began to rain. Which might sound nice after a long, arduous trek through the jungle heat, but that rain just kept coming. And kept coming for days, it refused to stop, so that army sat atop a mountain with their wet, useless gunpowder. They were unable to build fires or they would give away their position, which means that they were stuck with wet supplies and wet food which began to rot very quickly, at which point the army began to get sick, and then the army began to die. This initial attack was going to go nowhere, so New Caledonia must be safe, right? Well, from the Spanish attack, yes, but all of that rain was giving them troubles too. Before long, more and more men and women got sick and died. Their food rotted. They were starving. They were ill. Before long, there were more people in the graveyard of New Edinburgh than in the houses. In July 1699, New Caledonia was finally abandoned. Of the 1,200 settlers who had arrived about a year earlier, only 300 were able to flee. When they reached Jamaica, they were refused entry thanks to those orders from Whitehall. Turns out the New Caledonians were not welcome anywhere in the English world. 
The voyage back was hard. More than 50 people died before they reached home. And when they arrived, they were treated as villains, traitors to the nation, human scum, deserters, cowards. They should be treated as criminals. Many of them were arrested. Many were disowned by their families. Some were even outlawed from Scotland altogether. So why did they get this kind of reaction? Well, the authorities, really everyone in their home nation, just didn't believe that they were telling the truth about the state of the colony. This was it? There were 1,200 people. You can't seriously be telling us that almost a 1,000 of you died. No, you're lying and criminals, all of you. Because, of course, they had all those letters. All of those letters that Alexander Hamilton had brought when he sailed back to Edinburgh. Letters that said, every single one said that the Darien scheme had worked. New Caledonia is a rousing success. It's nothing but green pastures and blue skies, full bellies and happy children. Over a thousand testimonials saying that New Caledonia was a heaven on earth, a true paradise, and everyone should book passage immediately. Now, those testimonials all reached private families, so it wasn't until later when investigators and mostly historians began to look at the compiled evidence that they realized all of those letters seemed remarkably similar. There were a few stock phrases that appeared in almost every letter, and they all painted the exact same picture, almost like the people had been instructed what they were to write. So not only did the leaders of New Caledonia screw up so amazingly badly that they failed to secure any supplies, that their failings led to the deaths of almost a thousand people, they also conspired to lure yet another couple thousand people to their pit of hell and to their eventual deaths. See, before that ship of 250 survivors arrived in Scotland, yet another fleet set sail with a fresh batch of colonists. After Alexander Hamilton returned to Scotland with such glad tidings, they organized another huge fleet to colonize Panama. They had more colonists than the first had. They had more clergymen, including an archbishop, and they didn't have nearly enough food. See, they expected the harvests of yam and corn to feed them when they arrived because everybody said it was doing so well. But when they arrived, they found no verdant fields, they found a, an abandoned swamp filled with dead bodies. It was immediately clear that things had not gone as expected. So what do you do when you find a hellmouth filled with corpses of the people who tried to do what you are about to try to do? If it's me, I say, nope, I'm out, I turn around, and I leave. But of course, I'm not uh, an evil piece of human waste, at least I like to think not. What an evil piece of human waste might, if they happened to be a military officer, what they might do is impose martial law. They might beat, torture, and kill anyone who dissented. They might try to force this failed colony into a success by turning it into a petty dictatorship. And they might ensure that everyone who sailed in his fleet would suffer needlessly until they died. What happened here at New Caledonia was bad. But I don't want to delve too deeply into the final stages of that story. See, by that point we'd be reaching pretty deep into the 18th century. And the world is changing 
at that point in our story. The Nine Years' War? Over. There was a new war about to begin. England had a new monarch, as did Spain. All of that matters to our story. There are too many interconnected threads. So today, that's where we're going to leave New Caledonia, a failed, swampy ruin on the coast of Panama. Next time, we're going to turn our eyes to Admiral Sir John Benbow and his hunt for pirates. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I cannot recommend highly enough The Secret History of Hollywood. I recently went on something of a neo-noir film kick. You know, Chinatown. L.A. Confidential, The Black Dahlia, that kind of thing. And it really puts something of a bug in my ear for those dark stories out of Hollywood. And The Secret History of Hollywood is really scratching that itch. It's a great show. You should all check it out. You can find it at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.